Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. I was talking to my wife, Laura, before, uh, well, I guess it was yesterday, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be hanging, I forgot, I'm going to be hanging these flags for Pentecost Sunday because um, it's Pentecost Sunday. And some traditions uh, hang red flags and, and make a big deal uh, over the whole uh, Pentecost thing. And I've never really been a part of uh, churches that made a big deal of the actual Sunday itself. And so this is kind of a new thing for me. And then uh, Laura was really surprised that I said I was coming down to hang flags because I've, I've famously had kind of an anti-flags stance for a very long, long time. And, uh, and so I think she was probably partly just thinking that I was making something up. Um, but here they are. Here they are. Uh, and uh, Joe Goldsby was here early setting up, and he said it looked like I stole them from a used car dealership. <laughs> so, which I, I didn't. I ordered them on Amazon. And... Um, and I was, I was thinking that the triangle red flags would just really look like tongues of fire. So use your imagination, if you will, and imagine that uh, the tongues of fire are all there. It's Pentecost Sunday. It's, it's 50 days from the day after the first Sabbath of Passover. Uh, this is when it would happen. If you counted like a Sadducee, if you counted like a Pharisee, it was a little more complicated. And I learned this week, I'm not smart enough to be a Pharisee. I could only be a Sadducee. The Pharisees are way too, way too complicated. Um, but Pentecost Sunday is the day that we celebrate the story from Acts chapter 2, when after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, he, he promised he would send the Holy Spirit. He said to his disciples, he said, I want you to go and I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high, until the Holy Spirit comes uh, to empower you for the work that he's calling you to do. And so on Pentecost the Feast of Pentecost, on that Pentecost Sunday, the disciples of Jesus are gathered, 120 of them are, are the leftovers. Everyone else has maybe fallen away after the, the crucifixion, but there's 120 of them gathered together in this upper room. They're praying, and, and the story that there's a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind just batters through the neighborhood, and then there's tongues of fire that come and descend over the disciples' heads, and and they begin praying, they begin prophesying in all of these unlearned languages, uh, speaking in tongues. It's this really remarkable story. And, um, and in my childhood, I was a part of a congregation that had uh, a semi-retired pastor who was there sort of helping out with this church plant and the younger pastor who was starting it. And this particular man who was uh, much older, I mean, in my memory, he's like 90, but in reality, I don't know, maybe he was like 55. You know how it is when you're young, people are older. But he had what I can only describe as what he thought was a really contagious passion for, uh, for messianic prophecy and, and fulfillment. And, and especially for connecting the dots between the Old Testament law and, and, and the Old Testament prophets and this new covenant and this new thing that, was, that, was, you know, that God was doing um, and so every now and then, uh, he would get to teach on a Sunday night. He didn't really get to teach on Sunday mornings, but he got to teach on a Sunday night every now and then. And he would have provided for everyone who was there 
pages of diagrams and, and almost like a, a script of his sermon with all of these diagrams of, uh, you know, Jewish feasts and, and these charts of prophecy and dates. And, um, and, and, then he, and then he would just go on, you know, freestyling about the booths and the trumpets and the first fruits and, and, uh, and, and the new wine and the latter rain and the first harvest. I mean, just going on and on about it. And, and of course, I was hooked, man. I mean, this is just, you know, to a, to a 13-year-old, what could be more interesting than all of these subjects? Um, it, I remember he would go on and on about the important numbers, right? The biblical numbers like 3 and 7 and 12 and 49 and 50 and, and 120. And, 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 and this is at Sunday night. This is a Sunday night service. And so I can hardly keep my eyes open. And, and I'm sitting there just bored out of my mind. I, I mean, one, because I'm a middle schooler and middle schoolers are very easily bored. Um, not only that, but they're really biased. You know, I mean, I remember when I was in middle school, I thought anyone who was over 15 didn't know what they were talking about. Now that I'm older, I know nobody under 50 knows what they're talking about. Um, it, but then the other side was I, you know, I'd grown up in, in more charismatic, uh, traditions. And, and so I was, I was really largely ignorant to, um, to the old Testament, uh, to, uh, to, to how these things all connected to one another and the importance of those connections. They were just all things that were, um, you know, above my head. Um, so these Sunday night messages by this older guy were, were really my first exposure, at least in the American church, my first exposure to the idea that there were super important cultural concepts that were outside of my 20th century American Christian experience. Now, specifically, that there was there was a richness and a significance to Jesus's first century Jewish culture that that has a commentary on what it is that God is doing and how it is that we're supposed to to understand it. Um, so, at risk of putting some of you to sleep, we're going to do a deep dive into the Feast of Pentecost today. Uh, it's going to be great. So. Um, Let's go back just a few weeks of sermons here. What is in the creation story? What is painted as the pinnacle of, of humanity's experience or, or the pinnacle of creation? It's the seventh day, right? We talked about that. We've, we've thrown it into a few sermons where, this, where the Genesis creation narrative is meant to communicate to all of us that there is a seventh day rest, that after the work is done, after God has completed what he's done, there's a day of rest that is blessed by the presence of God. It's, it's a day that, we, uh, that all of creation is invited to step into and enjoy, you know, the blessed rest of all that God has done. Uh, to take time off and to celebrate and enjoy what God has completed. And this was a really important weekly theme for the, the Hebrew people all throughout the Old Testament and then even in Jesus' time. They had the Sabbath. And they all took a day off to rest and to reflect on what God has done, his completed work, and, and to be a part of that. And in, in addition to having this one day off in seven where we're doing that, where we're entering God's rest, they also had three festivals a year where they were supposed to, to gather at 
the gathering place, so the, the tabernacle before the temple was built, and then the temple after the temple was built, but they would gather in the place of worship. The whole nation would gather, have a sacred assembly, they would have these feasts, and they would take some time off to rest and reflect and celebrate together what God has done. Their, their year, their calendar year, started off with the Feast of Passover, which was the first, uh, the first feast of the year. It was the first feast that God commanded them to observe, and, and it was meant to commemorate the miracle of Israel being delivered from slavery into Egypt. And then from the Passover, they were supposed to count seven times seven, 49 days, and then on the 50th day, they had the Feast of, of Pentecost, which penta is just the, the Greek prefix for 50. They had the Feast of, of Pentecost, and it was also called Shavuot, I keep wanting to say Shavuot, but that would sound like I am a Neanderthal and know nothing about Hebrew, which is far too close to the truth for me to be comfortable with. So uh, anyway, Shavuot, and, and God initially prescribed this as the feast that celebrated the, the end of the harvest, the feast that celebrated when all the harvest had been gathered. The last part of the Feast of Passover was the Feast of first fruits, and so you brought an offering of the very first things that were growing in your harvest, and you gave those at Passover, and then, or at the end of the of, of uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then seven. As I'm saying all this out loud, I'm thinking, man, this all sounds so boring. <laughs> My apologies. And then seven weeks later, you bring another offering of the abundance of your harvest uh, to celebrate, you know, this great harvest that God has given you. So one in seven, we take a rest. Seven times seven. We have a, a second festival, um, and this number is really, really important for us. Now, at Passover, you've been delivered. You've escaped from Egypt. We're celebrating that. And then seven weeks after Passover, something significant happened at a mountain as well where God gave his law to the nation of Israel and spoke to them and, and really formed them as a nation for the first time. And so where God initially gave Shavuot to celebrate the harvest, it also came to be a time that they commemorated being becoming a nation, the giving of the law. So it's sort of a dual holiday in, in modern times and was probably celebrated as a dual holiday all the way back to the simple second temple period, the, the first century of Israel. Um, so we're celebrating the beginning of God's work, delivery from slavery, and then we're celebrating the completion of God's work, the establishment of of a nation, or we're celebrating the beginning of God's work, this first fruits of our harvest, because we're an agrarian society, and this is super important to us, and then we're celebrating the end of the harvest, when the fullness of what God has done has been realized, and our, our barns are full, and we're ready to live another year. So this is, I think, part of the reason that we have these feasts is because this is how God speaks to uh, an agrarian society. This is how God speaks to people whose lives depend on planting and being able to harvest what they've planted. I'm sure that if this was all happening today, God would have just done it entirely through social media or something like that. But because it's back then, he does this. And so for these people, their very lives, the planting, the harvesting, the weekly rhythm, it all is reminding them and pointing them towards this reality that there is a seventh day rest when everything will be completed and we will rest from our work. This constantly pointing to this reality that, that God has a plan to complete all things and invite his created beings 
into a rest with him. And because they're so connected to the weekly and the seasonal rhythms of life, and it's a huge part of their year, I think they tended to stay somewhat connected to that reality. It's maybe a little bit different for those of us who are living today, and so much of our life insulates us from the natural rhythms of the year, from planting and harvesting. I mean, even those of us who are planting a few things in our garden, our lives don't depend on it. You know, if we have a bad harvest, it just means we'll spend more at the grocery store. No one's going to lose too much sleep over it. So you have these weekly reminders, rest. Then you have the annual reminders, the, the, the festivals and the other things. But then God also worked into the Hebrew calendar commandments that gave them even bigger reminders than that. The next one up is that every seven years, they took a Sabbath year. So they would work hard for six years, living their normal farmer life. And then on the seventh year, they would take a sabbatical year. They weren't to plant anything in the seventh year. They were just to let the land rest, and they were commanded to rest themselves and reflect on the fact that their God has completed creation, made everything for them, kind of enter into that seventh-day rest. And when God gives them this command, he, he acknowledges that this is asking farmers to do a lot, to not farm for a year. He says, you might say to yourself, what are we going to eat if we don't plant anything? He says, I'll tell you what, you're going to have a triple harvest in your sixth year. You're going to harvest so much in the sixth year, just from your normal planting, that you're still going to be eating it when you plant everything in the eighth year. And you're still going to be eating it when you go to harvest everything in the ninth year. God is going to give you such an abundant harvest in year six that you can trust him and obey him and do what he's asked you to do, to rest from your work and enter that seventh year rest. If it's not enough that he gives us a year every seven years to enter his rest, he also commanded them that every seven times seven years, so 49 years, and then in the 50th year, he commanded them to have what was called a jubilee. So every seven times seven years, they they take an extra year off. So you can imagine year 49 would be seven times seven. Year 49 is a year off, right? And then year 50 is the jubilee year, and you are commanded to take another year off. And this is where it's like, oh, I get it. That's why the six years were three years, because we are actually going to have to live off of it for one, one year out of 50. Um, they take another year off. Not only do they take a year off from planting, but every indentured slave is commanded to be set free. How people ended up in slavery back then is they owed money to people. That's actually still how people end up in slavery today. They just end up being slaves to the credit card companies. But you, you know, all the indentured slaves are to be set free. Also, all of the land in the promised land was to be returned to the original owners. So one way that people would negotiate debt is to sell the land that they'd inherited from their families. And they'd sell the land. They'd get out of debt. Maybe they didn't have to be slaves, but they don't have any land now. And I guess you've got to work on somebody else's land if you're a farmer and you don't have any land. Anyhow, in the Jubilee year, the land gets reset, the slaves get set free, and nobody does any work. We're all entering God's rest together. And these are all reminders to the people that God has completed the work, and we're being invited to come and live 
in that rest. And all that's required to live in that rest is to trust that God's done the work that he's going to provide and then to obey him, to not do any of the work ourselves. And if you think about the average lifespan of a human being and you think how God set up this jubilee, it's pretty great that probably in the average person's lifetime, they're going to get at least one jubilee. If they're lucky enough to have a jubilee when they're very, very young, they might get to have another jubilee when they're very, very old. Two years off. Can you imagine it? Just sit and think about it. Two years off for a moment. And all the debt being forgiven. What a great thing. So if we're, if we, so what Pentecost is to the Sabbath, remember one out of seven, we take a rest. And then seven times seven, we take the Pentecost celebration. It, it, this idea that after the fullness of time, after this, after the, the harvest is complete, we're going to have another celebration about that. That's in many ways what the Jubilee is to the Sabbath year. One out of seven years, we take a rest. But then at the fullness of time, when God has said, all right, it's the fullness of time now, then we don't just take another year of rest, but everything gets reset. And to enjoy all of this, you just have to trust God, and then you just have to obey. We're not going to be doing any planting. If I've acquired land through you know, people who have been indebted to me, I'm giving it all back. If I've acquired slaves because people are indebted to me, I'm giving them all their freedom. And this isn't all just about observing the holidays or remembering the right days to do these things on, but it's all meant to be teaching God's people and pointing them to his eternal rest. He's inviting humanity into these practical actions of trust and obedience that are going to enable him enable them to enter his rest. So if you know the story of the gospel, Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection all happens during the Passover, right? We all knew that. Nod your heads. Yes, yes. Turn to your neighbor and say, yes, I knew that. Yes, indeed, I knew that for sure. And, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, again, a signal of the beginning of God's work of setting his people free, right? This was the, the, the Passover night was in many ways the culminating act that set the people free from Egypt. But now that we've been set free from sin, we still need, or free from Egypt, we still need God to create, to make us a nation, to make us a legitimate people. And God shows up seven times seven weeks later and gives them the law and makes them a nation. And the scriptures will talk about Jesus's resurrection and his sacrifice as the first fruits in the terms of the cultural terms of of a Jewish person thinking about the Passover. This is the first fruits. This is the beginning of the harvest. This is the beginning of a season where we get to come and and begin to pull in into our barns the the fruit of the labor that's gone before. Um, And then if we think about Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, then we can also think about Pentecost to this idea of there's there's a completedness now to this. This is the, the harvest is over. It signals a new season where we are now eating and drinking and fully enjoying the goodness of what God has provided for us. But, but what does it mean to live in the fullness of time? And I think to live in the fullness of time, that's when the importance of the Jubilee year comes in because there's this idea that the fullness of time doesn't just doesn't just dictate that we interact with God in a certain way, but it dictates that we interact with others in a certain way as well. And in the Jubilee year, it wasn't about just bringing your offerings to God. 
But it was about letting go of everything that other people owed you. I was thinking about this idea of debt forgiveness. And, and student loan forgiveness is a pretty hot topic nowadays. And, and I would just imagine, I mean, I don't know, giving space for people to be individuals and have their own convictions on it. But I would just imagine that if you are a, a younger person who's uh, heavily indebted for your education, you probably are likely to think that student loan forgiveness sounds like a pretty darn good deal, I, I would imagine. And yet, if you are someone who, uh, who has paid all of their debt, you're maybe a little further on in years, and, and you've, you've paid those things, and you know that in order for all student loans to be forgiven, that it's going to be your tax dollars <laughs> that are paying for their education, you might feel a little differently about debt forgiveness, right? And I would imagine it was similar as the Jubilee year is approaching and you have these indentured servants in your house who have been have been serving you so well and you've acquired all of this land. That the Jubilee means something entirely different to you than it means to those who have, you know, through suffering, hardship or or uh, neglect of their own, have lost their land or have lost their freedom. These things mean very different things to us. And so the Pentecost is is good news to the debtors. But if you're if you're a lender, these kinds of things maybe are really tough to receive as good news. I mean, I think if we're all honest, we we love getting free stuff. I love getting free stuff. I have I've become uh, completely and unashamedly embezzled in an Amazon scheme. Uh, I've got this company sending me free stuff for good reviews. I'm like, I can't believe it. They, they, they've, they've sent me two things now, and I'm, I'm like, I'm in, I think. I think I'm in. They're going to keep, they're going to keep. I can't believe this is even legal. It's probably not. We'll have to strike this from the recording. But, um, but we love getting free stuff, and my reviews are honest. Like, it's cheap electronics <laughs> that if I only paid, you know, if I paid a tenth of what the Apple one costs, yeah, I'd be pretty happy with this. I only paid a tenth of what the Apple one costs. It's fine. Um, anyways, that's how my reviews go. Uh, feel free to look them up on Amazon. <laughs> we love getting free stuff, but we typically do not love giving our stuff away, especially if someone has told us that we need to give our stuff away. I think along those same lines, we love being forgiven. There's nothing better than someone saying to you, oh, it's all right, I forgive you. I remember I, I worked for a, a local sanitation company for a while, for many years, and I drove, I think, a, almost a half a million miles for them. And it's just inevitable when you drive that much, you're going to bump into something here and there. It's just going to happen, I like to think. It's just going to happen. And this one day, I'd, I'd bumped into something, and I'm just so ashamed. I'm having flashbacks to when I'm like 16 years old, driving my parents' cars and bumping into things. You know, you're just like, I can't believe your stomach. You just feel sick. And and I, I come in and I, I, you know, share what I've done. And it was actually in the parking lot at Waste Control. So I haven't even gotten off the lot yet, and I'm bumping into stuff. And and the owner happens to be there, and he comes out and he looks at it, and he's like, Hey, it's all right. Don't worry about it. You know, this kind of stuff happens. I'm just like, this is too good to be true. I've been forgiven. This is incredible. What a great feeling that is. And yet, when you at times have to forgive somebody else, or especially if someone tells you 
you need to forgive somebody else. It's a different feeling entirely. That's just about the worst news you can give to somebody. Jesus had a story about this one time. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Are we just getting into the sermon now? Oh, my. Matthew 18. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would illuminate our minds as we read and study together. We know that you have things you want to speak to us. And so open our hearts to receive what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 18, starting in verse 23, it says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So all of his belongings are going to be gone. The land's going to be gone. And he and his family are going to be sold into slavery. Verse 26, at this, the servant fell on his knees before the master. And he said, be patient with me. I will pay back everything. I would imagine those who can rack up 10,000 bags of gold in debt probably aren't going to be very good at paying it off. But anyhow, I'll pay everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him. He began to choke him, and he said, pay back what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell to his knees, and he begged him, saying, be patient with me. And I will pay it back. But the man refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. They went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in and said to him, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. I debated not reading the last verse because, man, it just sounds harsh. I don't like saying harsh things, especially on Pentecost Sunday. But, you know, it didn't have to be that way, right? The first servant had been given debt forgiveness. He walked out of there, and he could have spent the next 20 years with a heart full of gratitude saying, Oh, my God, I've been forgiven. I can't believe it. What a great king this is. I've been forgiven. He could have come across the path of this servant who owed him just a little bit, and he could have thought to himself, I have been forgiven. This is great. You know what? It's like I just got paid 20 years worth of wages. I think I could forgive this right here. I mean, it literally is like I just got paid 20 years worth of wages. I borrowed all that money and I didn't have to pay it back. What a great deal. You know what? I forgive you too. And then it just spreads. The forgiveness, the joy, the gratitude just spreads. All of his debts had been paid. All he had to do was trust in the master's forgiving work and gratefully rest in that truth. But instead of that, instead of embracing that, he embraced this other part of his reality, that he was owed some money by a neighbor. And so instead of embracing the mindset of the debtor, 
He embraced the mindset of the lender. And because he held fast to this mindset, and because of his own unforgiveness, he ended up losing out on the opportunity to live as someone who had been forgiven. In many ways, this, this really was a prison of his own making. You know, we see something similar at the, at the end of the story of the man who had two sons, also called the story of the prodigal son. But we'll say the man who had two sons because it's not just about the prodigal. You have one son who says to his father, I'm ready to receive my inheritance. Give me everything that's owed me. I'm going to go my way and spend it all the way I see fit. The father says, okay, and gives that to the son. He goes off. He blows it all on wild living until he's dirt poor. And then he's living in this foreign country. He has no money. A famine comes to the land, and he's, he's flat out broke. He's working, tending some pigs. And, and Jesus in the story said he's looking at the pig slop, and he's thinking to himself, just a little bite. What I wouldn't do for just a little bite of this. And then he thinks to himself, oh, my goodness, even my master's, even my father's servants are eating better than this. They're living a better life than me right now. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to tell him I'm sorry, and I'm going to ask him to work at his servant. So he begins to head back home. And while he was still a long way off from home, his father saw him, was filled with compassion, and ran to him, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son begins to get into his spiel. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Before he can get any further than that, his father says to the servants who are there, Quick, bring a ring and put it on his finger. Bring a robe and dress him in it. And, and butcher the fatted calf. We're going to have a feast and a party. Because the son who was lost is now found. The son who was dead to me is now alive again. And so they all began to celebrate. But the father had another son, one who'd lived in his house, one who'd, who'd stayed when the other son left, a, a son who had worked faithfully for him while his brother was off doing whatever. And when he, he comes near the house and he hears the sound of music and dancing and he's calling out to the servant saying, hey, what's going on? And the servant says, well, your brother came back. It's a miracle. We're celebrating because he's home. But this older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father goes out and pleads with him. But he answers his father and he says, look, all of these years I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders and yet you've never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered all of your property and become destitute, comes back to your house, you're killing the fatted calf for him? It's a classic scenario, right? Forgiveness is good news unless in your mind you don't need to be forgiven. In which case, grace is just a pure scandal. I think when we see grace at work in people's lives and we think scandal that says a lot more about the pride in our own heart than about the justice of God's grace. My son, the father says, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive. He was lost 
and now he's standing. It, it may seem in this moment that we've wandered a long ways from Pentecost, but something happened when the Holy Spirit fell on a small group of Jewish believers in the upper room in Jerusalem. In the story specifically, they began to speak about the wonders of God in many languages. We can read it. It says, now they were in, staying in Jerusalem. There were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because everyone could hear them in their own language. They were utterly amazed. They said, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus, Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Can you believe it? Even there. And visitors from Rome and the Cretans and the Arabs, we all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. They're amazed and they're perplexed and they say to one another, what can this mean? What can this mean that all of these people are proclaiming the gospel in our language? I really think that what this means is that the Father is running down the road toward every nation. If you connect the stories, there's a story in the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel, and all of the nations are turned away from God in that moment. And then the story of, the Israel, of Israel is a story of God choosing one people from among all the nations that have run away. And through that people, calling everyone back home. And this moment of Pentecost is the moment when the father sees this lost son, that lost daughter on this continent, on that continent. The, the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out is a moment when God sees those children of his and begins to run full-fledged towards each one. But the older brother Jews have a little bit of a problem with this. We'll use Peter as an example. Peter's pretty prejudiced against anyone who's not a Jew. He's pretty prejudiced against all these prodigal nations, right? And God has to work with him. God has to speak to Peter through a vision and tell him, you cannot say those things that are unclean. You cannot call unclean those things that I have called clean. We're living in a different age. Something different is going on now, and I'm calling all of them. Sorry. I've wandered away. The thing every now and then it goes backwards instead of going forward. Um, God confronts him, says, don't call unclean. The, it, this is a new age. The fullness of time has come, and those who are outside are now in. So in, in that story, Peter's sitting on a rooftop praying, you know, feeling smugly superior to any Gentiles. And God has to speak to his heart so that he will go to a Gentile's house and proclaim the gospel to them. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the Jews who are gathered there in Jerusalem, the 120 in the upper room. The next time the Holy Spirit's described falling in that way and people are speaking in tongues is in Acts chapter 10 in the Gentile's house. And God's Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. And now they go, oh, we get it. What was lost centuries ago, millennia ago, cultures ago, what was lost is being reclaimed by God. The fullness has come and Jesus has changed everything. 
I was going to give you time to discuss in small groups, but we don't. So we'll have the worship team come back up, and I'll set the table for communion. There's an interesting note with the Feast of Pentecost, and, and, and it's along the lines of the bread that they uh, ate during Pentecost. So in the Passover, uh, part of that celebrating the Passover was that the house had to be cleared of all of the leaven, the leavening agent, the yeast in the house. And there was this super elaborate uh, process that was developed in Judaism by which we made sure there is no leaven in the house because that leaven was representative of sin, of the old life, of, of who we were. And God is taking us out of slavery and can give us a new identity. And so the leaven's got to all be out. And then we are eating bread that's baked without leaven. Uh, the English word we have for that is crackers. Um, we're eating crackers. Um, that's the bread that they're commanded to eat during Passover. What's interesting is that when you get to God commanding the people how to celebrate the Pentecost, the, the Shavuot, he commands them to bring as an offering to him two loaves of bread that have been baked with leaven. I think part of what he was trying to get to in that is that there will be a season when the harvest is over, when the fullness of time comes, that you don't have to sweep all the leaven out of the house to come before me. But that I'm going to do something remarkable where that leaven will no longer count against you. When the Apostle Paul describes the new covenant, he says the, the new covenant's terms our God is no longer counting our sins against us. And so through the process of God revealing himself to humanity, he went through a process of teaching us what sin was, how it, how it wants to rule over us, and how he's a God who wants to see us set free from that, wants to give us a different identity. But then he's also a God who is able to overcome our sin. And he's not counting our sins against us because sin is no big deal. But he's not counting our sins against us because his grace is so much greater. Jesus came to earth and sacrificed his body and his blood for us to overcome sin. To purchase that forgiveness. In the same way that the master who forgives the two, sorry, 10,000 bags of gold, that forgiveness costs that master 10,000 bags of gold. When God made a choice to forgive us, to not count our sins against us, it's because he said, I am going to pay the price. And in this new age, living in this new covenant, when Pentecost has happened, the Holy Spirit's here, the new covenant is in full effect, we still don't want to forget about who paid what so that we could enjoy the riches of his kingdom. And so every week we gather at the table for communion and we have bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for us. And we have blood that represents, or sorry, we have juice that represents blood. Important distinction there. Um, juice that represents his blood that was poured out for us. Because this forgiveness, although it's offered to us freely, is not free. 
the creator of the universe is the kind of person who said, I will endure that suffering myself so that you don't have to. And I will abundantly provide forgiveness in your life, no matter what the cost, because I love you that much. And so as we close with some time of worship today and as we receive communion, um, my heart is that we would, one, have a, a, a really good theological justification for the leaven in our bread at communion. Yes, that's completed. But two, that as you eat the bread and you, and you dip it in the cup and receive the cup, that you would just be reminded that you get to be the debtor who's forgiven because Jesus has chosen to be the lender who forgives. And then my hope is that his forgiveness would work in your heart and my heart in such a way that as we go out into this world, uh, we would be so quick to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness, to, to proclaim that God is not counting people's sins against them because we are always reminded each and every day that we are a debtor who's forgiven because he's the lender who is happy to forgive. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness in each of us. We uh, just want to receive it today. And so uh, we rejoice that you have given us all that is needed to be restored to you and restored to one another. We pray that your sacrifice would, would always loom large in our minds, that we would be mindful of how much you've paid. We would not forget the cost especially in those moments when we feel like we're uh, following you at great cost to ourselves, uh, we would just be reminded how much greater your sacrifice is. Um, we do just ask that your Holy Spirit would fill our lives and our hearts, uh, that you would uh, baptize us, immerse us in your Holy Spirit in a new and fresh way, uh, that this person of the Godhead who's been promised to be with us and in us would, would just be made manifest, made real in our midst today and, and, and throughout our week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.